Good morning, everybody. A uh, couple things before I dive into the message, kind of an update on the transition uh, process. Just so you know, we're about 70% of the way through all of the interviews. Um, you guys made a great start of this, even through the holidays. And so uh, we just have a few more to do, maybe 20 more to do. And so let's keep going strong with that. If you haven't uh, taken the opportunity to interview with me, uh, call Amber in the office and she'll set you up with an appointment. Uh, also, we sent out a congregational uh, survey in the email uh, this week. Feel free to open that up. Uh, click on the link. There's just three questions. Um, they're open-ended questions that allow you to speak into uh, everything that you uh, have loved about the history of this church, what you uh, like about going on in the church, and what you hope to see happening in the, in the future of this church. So feel free to contribute to that. Also, we're building a transition team, which is made up um, at least half of it uh, by some of our elders and then a few other people from the congregation. Uh, we'll be forming that team fully uh, later in February. And so just uh, be praying for that. Uh, they're actually going to be helping with the, um, the assessment aspects as I bring pieces of the assessment and actually give them some additional training. Uh, they'll be able to speak into the assessment report. So we've got elders and congregants looking at that. Uh, all right. Uh, I also have to tell you that I'm really excited about uh, your elders uh, and your staff here. I'm um, getting to know them more and more. We've had some early strategic planning sessions, uh, especially with the staff. So we're getting clear on what we're doing now uh, and then maybe getting a little bit clear on what we need to be doing in the future. Um, uh, we're becoming clear with those activities. Uh, we're becoming clear who we need to become as we engage those. And I can see the effectiveness of ministries um, is going to be increasing over the next few weeks and months. All right, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and uh, turn, into, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Today we're wrapping up our Epiphany series, and uh, a number of you have said you have appreciated this. I've gotten several uh, you know, like thank you cards and um, uh, encouragement cards for what we've been talking about. And um, if, you're, if you don't have like a really um, liturgical background, um, I did not. You might be uh, might not be familiar with Epiphany. It might be more Epipha what for you. Uh, so a reminder of the purpose of Epiphany. Epiphany is like a sudden revealing or a deeper revealing. And for us uh, here at Grace, uh, the revealing that we want to do is make Jesus known to others. Um, again, not out of the blue, out of the Bible. The theme um, for this series has been making Christ known by what we say and what we think and what we do. And uh, there have been sermon applications every week, so hopefully you are engaging those. Any heads nodding up and down? Eh, yeah, that's kind of convicting. Let's move on. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, you, you, you know what happens sometimes when you share your faith, when you're making Jesus known. Uh, actually, you, you bump into some, some struggles. You bump into people that don't want to hear, or people who have something else that they would rather share with you. You have some people that maybe are very antagonistic to the gospel. Uh, we would call that suffering. Sometimes there's suffering. Sometimes there's persecution. Because the evil one and the fallen world stand opposed to Christ, stand opposed to the salvation that he offers. Now, I'm going to do my best to remember this illustration, the story that Dr. Uh, John Hanna, my historical theology pref professor, uh, told me 27 years ago. Uh, in, semin in seminary, 
Uh, Dr. Hannah shared an account about a young man, brilliant mind, talented communicator, uh, humble-hearted. Uh, he came from a very powerful family in America. Uh, he was an Ivy League graduate, Harvard or Princeton, I don't remember. Uh, it, it was 1920-something, and his, his parents, uh, he went against his parents' wishes. Uh, he followed the Lord's call to be a missionary uh, in the East, uh, somewhere around China. Now, there had been some significant language learning with a, a remote tribe there, and so he was sent uh, to go be with the, the translation team in that region. And he learned as much as he could of that tribe's language as fast as he could. And then he set out for an initial trip. He took these pamphlets that had parts of the New Testament, New Testament translated for the very first time in this tribe's language. With little more than camping gear and the gospel, he traveled to this remote village. He docked his canoe um, on the riverbank that was just upstream of this little village, and he grabbed a handful of these pamphlets, and he stepped out uh, into the water, and he was immediately speared and just pumped full of arrows. He died <laughs> before he could say a word. His body was later fished out of the river, brought back to his grieving parents in America, and in their sorrow, they uh, they just couldn't understand. With their faith weakening, all they could muster up in their explanation of their, their son's death was, what a waste. What a waste of a promising life. Last week, uh, we looked at the Apostle John, who at the time of his writing, his very first epistle, uh, he was probably the last apostle standing. The other 11 have been martyred. This morning, we're in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's letter to the, uh, the church at Ephesus. And in this letter that he penned to the church at Ephesus, it was done around 60, maybe the early 60s uh, AD. And he did this while he was in prison for the very first time in Rome uh, under the emperor Nero. Paul was suffering because... Uh, you could say he celebrated and he proclaimed Epiphany every day. Every day. Paul was suffering Epiphany because uh, he desired to proclaim Christ crucified and resurrected uh, to others. I love that about him, but that cost him. Along with others, I see the passage that we're looking at this morning kind of as a, as a holy rabbit trail in this first part of chapter 3. It's a digression from where Paul first started, and here's a helpful outline for us. We're going to look at the compassion of a prisoner in verses 1 and 13, kind of bookends this passage. Then we're going to look at the stewardship of grace, the mystery of the church, and then the ministry of the gospel. And what we learn from the Apostle Paul today is that the beauty of the church is the incalculable riches in Christ, which we're to share with our neighbors, and all nations. Let me say that again. The beauty of the church is the incalculable riches in Christ that we are to share with our neighbors and all nations. So follow along in your Bibles. I read the first five verses of Ephesians 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, 
On behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've briefly uh, written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now, Paul has written the letter to the Ephesians to protect them, to protect the church at Ephesus, to protect them from evil teachers outside the church, teaching confusion, teaching a false gospel, and also to protect them from professing believers inside the church who would teach perverse things. But he also wrote a letter to the church at Colossa. Uh, this first half of Ephesians chapter 3 has a, very, uh, has a parallel uh, section in Colossians, the end of chapter 1, the beginning of chapter 2. It's good for you to know. You could engage that in your own study. Here in Ephesians 3.1 is actually the, the start of a prayer that gets interrupted by verses 2 through 13. Verse 14 continues with the prayer uh, with the exact same uh, wording of verse 1, for this reason, and then continuing on with, I bow my knees before the Father. So that prayer is going to continue. So why did Paul go down this, this rabbit trail, bookending both sides of his past, this passage with his imprisonment and with his suffering? Well, I think it's to tend to weary hearts. Weary hearts and minds of his readers for two reasons. First of all, to ease their pain and then also to protect their faith. First, the Ephesians, they know he's in a Roman jail, which is a terrible place to be. And they hurt for him. So Paul tends to their pain born out of their sympathy for him. Second, he knows that the Ephesians are going to, they're going to begin to wonder. They may even begin to doubt the gospel if their champion, the champion of their faith is suffering in a Roman prison day after day, month after month. Suffering, it's, it's, a, it's a thorny issue, especially when good and godly people suffer. When we feel so helpless, especially when the people that we, we love are suffering and it doesn't look like there's, there's any remedy on the horizon. And that can cause us to doubt God's goodness or his power to relieve suffering. Now, while tending to their discouragement, nowhere do we read Paul grumbling or complaining to the Ephesians. Nor do we hear him just kind of stoically resign himself to it. He doesn't reason to himself or tell his readers, well, you know, you just got to take the good with the bad. No, he doesn't do that. And he doesn't respond with, you know, sometimes you just, we all just got to suck it up. He doesn't do that either. What Paul does here is actually the same thing he does in Philippians 1, verse 12. There he told the church at, at Philippi, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, meaning the hardship that he was experiencing there, has really served to advance the gospel. Paul's not ignoring hardship. He's just keeping the main thing the main thing. 
So when we look at the, the bookends of this passage, verses 1 and 13, Paul tells him that he's a prisoner of Christ, not Rome. You see, the Ephesians might be thinking, you know, Paul's in Rome, he's in a Roman jail, chained to Roman soldiers, he's a, a prisoner because of the emperor Nero of the mighty Roman Empire. <laughs> to that, Paul says, uh-uh. No how, no way. Paul says he became a prisoner, prisoner of Christ years earlier on the road to Damascus. And Jesus told him then, suffering before glory. Suffering before glory. And the glory that the Ephesians have and will have as a result of Paul's suffering is the glory that Christ shares with them. The glory that Christ shares with them in salvation and then ultimately in eternity through glorification. That perspective on suffering bookends all the rest that we're going to see here in verses 2 through 12. So looking at the stewardship of grace, verses 2 through 5, Paul quickly references his commissioning uh, actually came from God. And he explains it more in the, the next few verses. In essence, God gave Paul a gift, even though it led to suffering. God gave Paul a gift in giving him the responsibility to live out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. An important term for us to understand here is the word mystery. Paul uses it three times between verse 3 and verse 6. Paul's quick to let the Ephesians know that he didn't come up, come up with this mystery himself, nor did he learn it from other people, that it, but that it was revealed to him directly from God. The word mystery uh, in Scripture, it's used quite differently than we use the word in English. Let me explain what it is and what it isn't. Let me start that off by telling you about uh, the movie-watching habits and dynamics of my wife, Kim, and I. Neither of us like a very, like a really predictable movie, although I have caught my wife watching those sappy uh, Hall of, uh, Hallmark movies, you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, very predictable. But usually the more random the movie plot uh, seems, the more we both like it. The longer the nature of a key relationship or a, the location of a valuable asset remains a mystery, ooh, the better. Keep the mystery a mystery for as long as possible. Don't let us figure it out right away. Well, that's exactly not. Okay, That's not what Paul means here by using the Greek word for mystery. So in the context of the first century Ephesian believers, uh, the mystery is not some body of esoteric knowledge that these clandestine cults of Ephesus rigorously reserved for secret, a secret few people. And mystery is, is not intentionally hiding valuable truth or making it known only to a select few. That's not what mystery means. What mystery is, is that something that uh, was not known uh, is known now because God has revealed it. God's plan of salvation, it was already present in the Old Testament. It just wasn't clearly discerned. And as such, it was hidden in a sense. But it's now being made fully manifest through Christ, with Paul revealing it to the Gentiles as he was commissioned by Christ to do. 
and the content of the mystery that Paul reveals to his generation that we are to re-reveal to our generation is the gospel. Salvation comes only through Christ. And specifically here in verse 6, the mystery is spelled out as salvation being for Jew and Gentile alike. Salvation on equal footing before God. Verse 6, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Gentiles don't have to become Jewish proselytes to be saved. All people, all nations have uh, equal access to God through Christ and are equally and deeply loved by Him. That's the mystery. That's the mystery which Paul was commissioned by Jesus to reveal. And in verses 7 through 12, we see Paul's uh, unique ministry to the gospel and ours. Looking at verse 7 through verse 9, we'll look at those first. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me, though I am the very least of the saints, uh, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is plain of the mystery or is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. Let's stop there. Verse 7, uh, Paul says that, that his role, his office, his ministry was Uh, gifted to him, grace to him. Likewise, his abilities and his power to carry out the ministry were God-given as well. Interestingly, in verse 8, he mentioned that he was the very least of all saints, and, and he says that for two reasons. For all of Paul's appreciation of, of being a saint, being a believer, much less an apostle, he had no, um, inflated sense of his ability. He didn't seek a higher rank. He especially felt that uh, he should have been rejected by God because early on he persecuted the church, but still grace abounded and he was chosen by God. He never got over that. He never got over that God had chosen him despite his horrible past. Chosen not based upon his own ability, but again, by God's grace. Unmerited favor. And whatever he accomplished was a result of the power of God at work in him. The other reason is to remind us today that God does the same for us utilizes all of us to share what verse 8 describes as the unsearchable or incalculable riches of Christ. I like what John Piper says on this. He calls this a a missions passage, and rightly so. I use a couple of his thoughts. Here's one of them. He says this, Missions happen by preaching to the nations the unsearchable riches of Christ. Missionaries lift up Jesus Christ and for uh, and all that God is for us in him, and God gathers his church from all the peoples of the world. Well said, JP. 
That term, unsearchable riches of Christ, that covers a lot of ground here. Uh, but here the big, here's the big picture of what it means. Back in Ephesians 2, verse 12, Paul tells the Gentiles, the, the converts from other nations, he says, remember that you are one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, once all that God had promised in the, in the Old Testament for the glorious future of his people was not theirs. It was not theirs yet. They were excluded from everything that God promised. But later in verse 19, again, based on the cross of Christ, we read this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That is what missionaries preach everywhere. Everywhere they go, all who trust Christ are now fellow citizens of Israel. We are members of the household of God. We inherit every promise of God when we trust Christ. We, we will inherit the earth, and we are heirs to the new heavens and new earth. We are children of the creator of the universe in Jesus Christ. All things are ours. And Jesus Christ is the sum of all things. Ephesians 2.7 says, So in the coming ages, he, meaning God, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. So it's going to take ages upon ages upon ages just to start, just to start to see the riches of Christ. We're never going to see the end of the immeasurable riches of Christ. That is ours. That's what missionaries say to nations of the world. That Christ died and rose again so that people from every nation might be one. Be the church in this unsearchably rich inheritance. And oh, by the way, you ever seen a picture of a missionary? I got one right here, the Smiths. I got this last Sunday. Uh, they're missionaries in Uganda. I think that's like South Iowa somewhere. <laughs> a hopeful family on a holy mission, the Smiths. Pray for them financially support them. And you know what? You probably got a picture of another missionary on you right now. If you dove into your wallet and pulled out your license, there's a picture of a missionary right there. Own that responsibility courageously. You know what verse 8 here also sounds like, at least sounds a lot like to me? It's Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable are his ways. And that's a great transition to our last few verses. To describe the manifold, meaning the, the multicolored, the, the multifaceted wisdom of God. Previously in verse 9, speaking of God, who is the creator of everything, uh, who revealed this mystery, his 
church comprised of all nations, Paul now continues in verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities on this earth? No. In the heavenly places. That surprised me. This was according to the eternal purposes that he had realized, that, that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. The church here is described as the, the revealing agent of the diverse, multicolored, multifaceted wisdom of God. That's our primary purpose. This is the gathered church. This is to the gathered churches as they meet together that dot the terrain all over the earth. One of the truly diseased thoughts that infects the church in America is that some believers think that they really don't have to be a part of a gathered local church. So many surveys today show that uh, most believers think that you can be a good Christian and not be a part of a local church. Here and in other passages, Paul has absolutely no idea what they're talking about. Paul is saying it's essential for the world to understand that the beauty of the gospel is to have churches, gatherings of, of believers living out their faith. Paul's not idealistic, though. I mean, some people will say the church is not necessary. They just kind of point to churches and go, ooh, that's a, that church is a mess. That church is a mess. Paul's not idealistic. He knows what a mess all churches can be. And look at all the writings to his, the messed up churches that he visited or taught. All these New Testament churches are, are riddled with trouble. He's not naive, and yet he says the church... And God's plan is indispensable. It's the church who reveals God's wisdom to every part of a multinational creation. This certainly includes the, the diversity of tribes and tongues and nations in God's family. But humanity, real, is, is not the only audience. It's not the only God, audience that God intends to see the church in action. The audience includes the, the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. That might be the primary focus in this passage. This refers to spiritual beings, both good and evil. Mankind has limited knowledge of the beings in this realm. And what one commentator has said seems to ring true to me. That is, while angels look on meaning the church, look on the church and marvel. Demons look on in fear and tremble. So angels look deeply, uh, longingly at the beautiful expression of God's grace and wisdom through his church. However, the evil spirits in the heavenly places know that they were already defeated at the cross, and their eternal imprisonment awaits them. And as the church advances, the evil spirits see their, their destructive rule progressively coming to an end because of Jesus through his church. 
So as important as all believers' efforts of proclaiming this gospel mystery are, we still have to realize that it is Jesus who remains preeminent. Jesus is the one who came and accomplished, fulfilled, achieved God's plan, and we are the multicolored, multifaceted witness to his glory. And it's precisely because of our faith in Jesus. What he accomplished in our behalf, that, that verse 12 says, through prayer we can humbly but boldly seek and rest in the presence of God our Father. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be anxious. It's not by our power, but through prayer. The church lives by prayer. The church loves by prayer and makes the gospel known by prayer. We will do more than pray, but we must first pray. As I close this morning, no doubt that Paul has a very unique expression of God's call on his life for his ministry. But God still has a call for every believer's life, yours and mine. God's call for you and me is to humbly and courageously reveal our story. It's like we saw on the, the testimonies for the baptism. Reveal how God's beautiful sovereignty enables us to draw on the unsearchable riches of Christ in order that we would live now, live now a powerfully sacrificial life for His glory. We must live a life of powerful sacrifice for the glory of Christ. Amen? Oh, I think we missed an opportunity. We must live a powerful a life of powerful sacrifice for the glory of Christ. Amen? Amen. Amen. So after listening to Paul's uh, commitment to not only getting the gospel to others at great cost to himself, he says this in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart. Not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Again, Paul is tending to the hearts of other believers who may struggle with their faith in the face of suffering, specifically Paul's suffering. And the glory that they have and will have as a result of Paul's suffering is the glory that Christ shares with them in their salvation and ultimately in their full glorification in eternity. Christ followers of every generation, we need that reminder of the glory that Jesus shares with it. By it, we are helped. We're helped to persevere. Remember at the beginning of my sermon, the, the account of that, that young man and the seeming absence of glory that his parents felt at the loss of their son? Well, as Tertullian observed centuries ago, the blood of martyrs is the seed of Christ, the seed of the church. And as God would have it from eternity past, the cross comes before the crown. Suffering precedes glory. That young man's death and his parents' suffering became that tribe's glory. Because of that man's death, the tribe was deemed dangerous and unreceptive to, and was uh, unreceptive by, 
to a missionary organization, so all work with them ceased for many years. No one dared go back there. But as God would have it, the day that young man's body fell in the river, so did the gospel pamphlets that he had in his hand. Slipped out of his hand. Floated downstream. And over the time, as the tribe fished in the river, washed their clothes in the river, played in the river, blood-stained copies of the gospel in their language floated right up to them. Years later, as efforts were resumed to try to, to reach this tribe with the gospel, missionaries were very surprised to find a thriving faith. This uh, young man's death and his parents' suffering were to this tribe's eternal glory. Now, I, I never heard how the parents responded, and I'm pretty sure that this is it's beyond me to be able to suffer to that extent and still respond like Paul. It was indeed power-working grace in Paul to endure all the isolation and the beatings and the suffering while only being concerned for others. So I knew I've got room to grow. And the application for all of us could be something like this. Ask yourself, what is at least one aspect, one aspect of your life that the gospel has transformed? I encourage that so that we discover or remind ourselves because that is to Christ's glory. We can celebrate that. He who suffered for us, our transformation is his glory. Celebrate that, but don't be pacified by that. You know what that looks like? Or what that does for us as we learn or we're reminded of that powerful life change? Uh, we become even more grateful to God and hopeful for others. Grateful for the blessings of previous holy change. Hopeful as we intentionally engage Practices and people to, to keep that holy change going, that growth in Christ-likeness. And then just ask yourself, how could that life change, that life change part of your story, be shared to reveal God's mystery to others? We're not talking about bragging about this. But we're here to share our testimony with the same humility and amazement that, that Paul had about being an undeserved recipient of God's empowering and transforming grace. That's us, too. The example Paul gives is that he shares his story. So we know individually and collectively as a local church that we are to share our story. And all of this just manifests God's multicolored, multifaceted wisdom as we share the eternal and unsearchable riches of Christ, our Savior, with our neighbor and other nations. Let's pray. Father, 
Uh, we do want to celebrate the work that you've done in us. Anybody who has put their faith in your son, who has received his righteousness, puts us in righteous standing before you, and ask Christ to take our sins. There is life change. So, Father, I would ask that there be a, a continued effort in, in my life, in Grace's life, that, that we celebrate not just coming to faith, but growing in faith. And by growing in faith, we are living in such a way that reflects Christ's likeness to our spouses, our children, our neighbors. And in turn, our, our children and our neighbors and our spouses impact others in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our jobs. Father, in this way, we continue to accomplish the, the ministry you've given us to not just speak about the glory of the gospel, but be transformed by the glory of gospel so that our, our story reveals the mystery that all people, Christ died for all people. We are all equal before him. Nobody has um, special hierarchy or blessings. No race is better than another race. No gender is better than another gender. No age is better than another uh, age. Help us to live that out in a way that honors you as we do that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.